Hi everyone, welcome to PA Talks, an interview series by Parametric Architecture, the world's most renowned avant-garde architecture platform about parametric and computational design. We meet the architecture and design pioneers on this podcast and talk about their careers, experiences, methodologies, and visions for the future. My name is Hamid Hasanzadeh, founder and editor-in-chief of Parametric Architecture Platform. Welcome to the show, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. To support this podcast, please check the links in the description. Make sure to follow our platform on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and support us on Patreon. You may listen to this conversation on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. The following is my conversation with Farda Kolatan, an associate professor of architecture at the Weizmann School of Design, University of Pennsylvania, and the founding director of SU11 in New York City. After receiving his architectural diploma with distinction from the RWTH Aachen in Germany and his master's in architecture from the Columbia University, Kolatan has lectured and taught design studios along with theory and fabrication seminars at Columbia University, Cornell University, and many more institutions. His practice, SU11, is an award-winning studio with internationally acclaimed projects worldwide and over the past 15 years, it has been widely recognized as one of the leading design firms of its generation. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Dear Farda, thanks for being at GAD Foundation for an interview. This interview is organized and sponsored by GAD Foundation and Parametric Architecture Magazine. We invited you here to ask a couple of questions uh, about your academic and work experience in architecture. You are an associate professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania, and you have lectured on many leading architecture schools in different countries. Also, you have your own architecture practice, which is called SU11. So I'd like to start my questions from the education part. Uh, how architecture education is organized in the universities like University of Pennsylvania to change and adapt uh, with the upcoming design tools and technologies? I mean, UPenn has for many, many years been uh, taking on a leadership role in the way how they deal with technology or how we deal with technology. Um, I, I would say the development of the use of technology at an institution like Penn's Architecture School has been echoing uh, an overall trajectory of how the leading American schools have been dealing with technology, at least those schools that have a particular interest in design. Right. And, and what I mean by that is that the type of design that is um, material, um, formal, structural, textural, right? that the innovation comes through um, novelty in those material categories. And how can the technology that we use help us to express new kinds of um, material conditions? Right? And, um, so in the early days, uh, it was very strongly based on understanding what the technology can actually do because the technology itself, the digital technologies that we're talking about were new. They needed to be tested, they needed to be understood. Um, so often projects looked like um, the results of playing around with the technology to really understand what they would create. I myself taught digital fabrication courses since 2006 at, at UPenn, 
And I know that in the beginning, um, just the production of a tool was interesting because we saw things that we hadn't seen before. The second phase then became about, um, all right, what can we now do with the things that we produce? How can we channel them towards architectural questions and problems? Um, and then I would say in the last few years, including um, today, really, technology has um, matured to the level that it, it sinks back into the, into the background. Right? It's no longer, at least the way at Penn, um, it, the technology is no longer um, overtly the aesthetic um, that the projects produce. It's um, more intricate. Um, other kinds of motivational uh, design qualities feed into it. Another type of hybridization is happening between technology and other tools of design, as well as an understanding of history and site and place. And that kind of um, conglomeration or melange is, is, is producing, um, I would say, a lot of the work that you see at Penn. So there has been that sort of um, evolutionary trajectory of a kind of orthodoxy of the digital um, being softened up and now generating, I would say, more um, layered and varied results. As you know, there's always a gap between architecture education at universities and the real practice, which puts the students in a very hard situation that the first years of the practice were uh, experience. So regarding this issue, what would be your strategies for the education, for an easy adaptations for these students? That's an interesting question. It's actually one we, we discussed quite a bit um, in the United States as well. There, there are usually two different ways of looking at this. Um, the way you pose the question, it, it comes from one particular point of view, which is to say that the university or education um, education's main purpose is to prepare the student to have an easy transition into the world of practice. There's a counterposition to that, which is to say that higher education in architecture in particular, postgraduate, postprofessional, um, is supposed to do the opposite, right? It's actually supposed to alert the student um, to the challenges and the problems of the world, which sometimes includes the practice of architecture. Right? Um, so I, I, don't, I don't want to make it sound too much like it's a confrontational uh, balance between the academy, let's say, and the practice world. But I'm certainly more on the side of those who like to forge a, a criticality in the students so that when they go out into the world, they are not too easily absorbed into the existing, right? but they bring with them an ability to be critical and therefore to um, engender change. Right? So it's an agency of change that comes through the way how we educate them on the highest level. Um, now, having said that, of course, nobody is served by um, creating a divide like a wall between the academic world and the practice world, because then they will not cross over and the practice world will do whatever they do. But I do think that it's a fine line. And um, uh, we, we shouldn't just 
try to produce the perfect employee or even the perfect architectural principle to operate in the practice world. Because a lot of the things that happen in the practice world, of course, we all are very much aware of it, are far from ideal, right? They need change. So for us to be able to engender that change, we need to um, educate students in a way that they ask those kinds of questions. So to me, um, it, 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 that, that is my, I see my main role as an educator to instill that type of you know, critical thought in the students. There is no solid block of architectural program. Every architectural program is very different, right? But I, I feel we need that difference, first of all. I don't think you can have an individual, um, let's say universal idea how architectural education should happen. I mean, I'm very um, aware and familiar with architectural education in the United States and in some countries in, in Germany and to uh, some countries in Europe, like Germany, for instance, and even in Turkey, they're very, very different for obvious reasons. So it's important to me to um, understand why a school in a particular context, particular country educates their students in a particular way. Now, if you ask me as a professor at um, Penn Design, um, to me, then I would come back to the question and say, um, yes, I want my students to um, challenge the status quo rather than prepare them to fit right in. I'd like to ask about uh, the history of architecture you have, because you have talked a lot about the history of architecture. Uh, what is the role of history of architecture in today's digital world and how it is feeding the context of uh, computer-based designs? Um, again, I will, I will speak to how I look at it because everybody, this is a very specific question. So I'm not making a larger claim, but other people do. There's a lot of history that we see in this day and age coming back very, very clearly into, into design expressions. Um, so different people may have different ideas why they do what they do. Um, I myself, I'm um, interested in history mostly um, because of what I said early on, uh, trying to avoid abstraction. So if I work on a project and there is a context of that project, which usually, unless you're building somewhere on Mars, you do have some kind of built context. You have to deal with it in some way or another. Um, I'm not a contextualist. My interest is not to say I want to design buildings that fit in. Um, I'm coming from the point of view where I say there's a lot of strange idiosyncrasies everywhere, and I'm interested in those, the things that challenge um, an easy consumption of architecture. I like things to be difficult, not easy, because I believe when they're difficult, they will force you to um, spend more time with the thing at hand and try to understand it on a deeper level. It's not so easy to move on and say, okay, this is what it is. So history to me is one of those components. I think history is very complex. Um, if there is historical legibility in some of the designs, it is utilized to express complexity and difficulty. Uh, it is by no means meant to just sort of refer to history as the thing that we need to uphold, right? Um, 
I, I take a lot of liberties what I do with historical architecture in the context of the projects that we work in. And I kind of use them um, uh, literally like tools, conceptual tools as well as um, uh, design tools. So it matters a lot to me. I love history, but again, it's not a historical. I would never want the design that we produce to be misunderstood as some kind of um, referential architecture or historicist architecture. Mm -hmm. When we search about your works, we see that you are designing on a variety of scales. We see a massive science center in Cairo. Uh, we see interior designs and then the scales the scale goes even smaller, like a column designs and etc. Uh, what are the benefits of working on different design scales and how it is affecting your design capabilities? Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's also an interesting and, and kind of a personal question, or the answer will be personal. I, I, I think um, before anything, I probably see myself as a designer even more than I see myself as an architect. And I don't know when that happened because I know when I was a student, I wasn't thinking that way. But somewhere along the way, um, I, I came to the realization that what matters to me really is to just design stuff, to conceptualize and think about stuff and then design it. And if it takes the form of an object or an art piece or an installation or an interior or an exterior building, small, large, city, um, to me it's literally just a change in scale. But each one of these challenges is equally interesting and important to me. And I find um, there is a lateral connection to these kinds of problems. Now clearly a small scale object um, cannot be translated uh, too easily into a large-scale architecture. You have to think and rethink what it is you're doing according to the scale. But there are certain ideas and principles that can travel, right, or have echoes. Right? So we often um, do something small and then we find an element within that small object which we then translate into a much larger project. Right? A larger project then still uh, is very different, has to act differently, um, functionally, programmatically, aesthetically, and yet there are these moments that echo um, another project that we had generated earlier. So um, that's the main reason, I would say. A uh, secondary reason also is it's, it's a little bit like an exercise, you know? I mean, when you're, I don't know, exercising for a piano piece, there are certain finger exercises you do. Yes. Right? So you don't get to build large buildings all the time um, or even work on large competition kind of buildings. So the kind of finger exercises to us are often these art type projects or where the result is, is not something that you would traditionally call a building. But I like to look at all of it as design slash architecture. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. You have always mentioned that in the design, the final product is more important than the design process. What are your thoughts on valuing on the final product more than the design process? There's a really simple answer to that. I mean, at the end of the day, you go home, you're done. And what, what remains is the final object, final building final idea, final concept, in whatever state that architecture has expressed itself. Um, 
that's what we see, that's what other people see, that's what's in the world. Um, I don't believe in a design where an explanation of the process or um, even an understanding for those who are not producing is an understanding of those um, of, of the project has to be based on the process. Right. I think process is very important. I don't think you can do good design without it. You need to know what it is you're doing. You need to be an expert. Um, you need to do it over and over and study and whatever it is you use in the production of architecture, um, that process you need you need to control. The, the more the better. But it's not something that has to uh, become part of the uh, you know sort of value of the final outcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask about parametric design. Uh, you have also worked on parametric design and parametric architecture. Uh, how would you define it and what are the most important features that uh, this design tool has? Um, well, that's in a way a loaded question um, because first of all, it, it, it is very difficult to, I feel more comfortable to call it digital design and not parametric design. Um, because parametric design falls into two camps. We either talk about parametricism, which is what Patrick Schumacher is talking about in his books. Um, and he, he very clearly determines what he thinks parametricism is. Um, and then there's parametric architecture, which is basically design that has been produced with a certain kind of software, which we call parametric software. So there is no particular uh, conceptual or ethical idea connected to parametric design. Parametric design truly is a tool. Parametricism is, I think, as a, as a much larger framework, um, well-defined by Patrick. Um, so if, if I can change the question a little bit to, to, to digital, um, overtly sort of digital design. When we started in the 1990s, uh, mid-90s, when I was a student and then um, young uh, practitioner in, in the late 90s, um, the, digi the digital was just basically this fantastic new tool that came out of nowhere. And we were simply just uh, fortunate as a generation um, to be at the right time at the right place, if you were at one of the places that um, engaged in early digital design. I was at Columbia University, and Columbia University under Bernard Schumi back then was among the first institutions that really strongly pushed to um, work with digital tools. We had the um, famous or infamous uh, first paperless studios where the students were asked to design only with a computer, nothing else. I happened to be in one of those first, um, there were three. I was in one of those paperless studios run by Greg Lynn. And um, it felt exciting. It was new. We didn't really know at all what it would yield. It wasn't just... Uh, going to a studio knowing, having already seen what has been produced and then basically re reproducing it. It was truly experimental. And Greg was great that way because he forced us to use software that was not meant for architecture. Um, we were asked to use animation software, which today is a common thing, but back then it wasn't. 
uh, we use Softimage, and this was before Maya was even on the market. I think Maya came on the market in 98, this is 94, this is fall 94. Um, but it's similar. Um, it's, uh, it's a software that doesn't allow you to just draw lines and extrude them into walls. And it, you have to work with UV and surfaces. And we were really challenged to understand the geometries that would come from this particular tool and then ask ourselves what it could do for the discipline of architecture. Now, to me, there's a, there's a parametricism in there. Um, but the challenge was not to create a more efficient or more functionalist design. The challenge was how do you break down pre-existing ideas of what we thought architecture is about with the introduction of a new tool. Right? And we often refer to it as some kind of a paradigm shift. I still believe it was a paradigm shift, right? where it's not only a tool, but a whole way of thinking about the world um, was altered by the introduction of a certain kind of software. Again, there was, of course, architecture software being already used for more than 10 years in the mid-90s, but it was AutoCAD, MiniCAD, you know, basically um, computational tools that were mimicking how the architect already draws, right? It was just, we draw like this, and then we draw like that in the computer. The big difference with the parametric or parametricist or digital approach was um, that we didn't mimic how architects work prior. We tried to sort of um, simulate a new kind of architectural realm, one that's, again, based on tools of animation, um, privileging surfaces and UVs versus XYZ space, moving away from a Cartesian understanding of the world to one of topologies. I mean, these were all major changes that we were thrown into. Um, so it, to me, it was a wonderful time. Really, we felt like pioneers, but like everything else, it, it doesn't, there is no endless experimentation with one particular tool. It builds up, it matures, and at some point you ask different kinds of questions with the same tool. Right? And then what happened is the experimentation um, became less and a new kind of language arose, and um, which today we can all identify. Right? We, we know the architects who do that kind of work. We know how those buildings usually look. Um, so it has become a different kind of animal, if you will. So some of the most recent tendencies to bring in history and, you know, we see a lot of postmodern-like architecture from the young generation coming back. Um, to me, they're all reactions to the trajectory that the digital project has taken over the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, so thank you. Would you please tell us what is your inspiration in architecture? Oh, uh, many things. If, I, if I'm focusing on architecture itself, uh, which is not the only inspiration, um, lately I will bring that back to um, the early part of the interview. Lately I would say I'm interested in hybridization, I'm interested in misfits and Otkins, I'm interested in idiosyncratic expressions of design. I think um, that's more uh, a true expression of our contemporary moment, if you will. 
Uh, it seems everything goes on many levels, not only in architecture, but also in art and, and even in, in other creative fields. Um, we are not in a time of orthodoxy. We are not in a time of classical modernism, right, where the avant-garde is collectively pulling on one string. Um, maybe we had that in the 90s for some time, as I was just mentioning, but right now um, that one string has unfurled into many, many, many different bits and pieces, and we're pulling sort of still collectively, still knowing where they all come together at some point in history, not that far, not that long ago. But it is, it has become very, very um, diverse. And as I would say, not only diverse, but idiosyncratic. There's there are weird and strange and peculiar architectural qualities that we see um, being expressed by a whole variety of designers. So I, I look for those, and I also like to look for those in existing and older architectural examples. I mean, one reason why I love coming to Istanbul is I know that in the 19th century, there have been a whole set of uh, Ottoman um, examples of architecture that mix and blend with Baroque, late Baroque elements, Rococo elements, um, Empire-style elements. Um, all these were considered to be impure at some point in time. Um, and yet there are these fascinating um, conglomerates of different ideas and different styles and, uh, yeah, the way how they come together to create these seemingly um, ambiguous qualities. That's what I'm the most interested in yeah, this day and age. It's interesting. Thanks for your time. In closing, I would like to ask what kind of advice would you like to share with young architects? Oh, um, hmm. The simple questions are always the most difficult ones, the aren't they? Question, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Particularly if you don't want to sort of give any kind of platitude answer um, for this type of question. But I would say, uh, given that I do think we are at a time where a lot of different ideas seem to coexist simultaneously, um, there's a basically a lateral way of perceiving the world rather than one that is sort of, let's say, vertical. Um, I would recommend that any young person, an architect, or anybody who's interested really in, in the field of design um, needs to do many things really well at the same time. Um, since to me, as I also answered in regards to the design question and the scale question, um, what really matters is how to develop um, a kind of a longer conceptual idea within which you can build a career. Right? In the old days, um, Peter Eisenman causes a project. Right? I mean, you just, what is your project? What are you working on? I, I don't know if I, if, if I see it exactly in those terms, but I, I do agree that it's very important in order not to get lost in this sort of lateral flood of ideas and images that come up and disappear within minutes, is to find a way of navigation and a way of production and um, bringing the world of images that is growing constantly um, to bear into how we manifest form and physicality. Um, start as early as you can. 
my, that would be my advice. Um, don't just sort of do things um, quickly without taking your own time to sort of step back a moment and conceptualize the moves you've done so you can build up on them in some kind of way. Um, this building up doesn't have to express itself formally as the same thing. I don't think there's, we can do that anymore. I don't think um, an architect can basically have a 50-year career with buildings that all look the same. I think that's over with. Um, in this day and age, it will not survive. It will not keep people's attention. And you don't, you're not granted any longer as an architect to, um, you, don't, you don't have the time to develop that kind of project. Things are too quick. So how do you figure to build sort of consistency in your work in these circumstances is something I don't have an answer for, but it's something I would ask every young architect and architecture student to think about. Yeah, very helpful, very helpful. Thank you. All right. Dear Farda, thank you so much for such an amazing interview. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe to Peer Talks Podcasts and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts in order not to miss a single episode. Also, you can find out more by going to parametric-architecture.com slash PATalks. Please share this podcast with a URL to inspire a friend. Also, you can use hashtag PATalks on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook to give us a feedback about the podcast. Thank you.